0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So the the book of the Gospels that we use here at All Souls, that you see here on the altar, um, it's an illuminated edition, which means when you open it, you'll see that the artist, Makoto Fujimura, has painted small images at the start of every chapter. And as you flip through the pages, he's also added color and texture to the background of the text. It's, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's really beautiful just to flip through and see. In addition to those illuminations, he included a painting for each of the gospels themselves and then a co- cover image for the entire project. And you can actually see a few images or elements from that project or from that cover image on our actual cover. The full painting has more details. But I think about this cover every time I look at the book and I wonder to myself, what is Fujimura trying to tell us about Jesus? about the gospel and as I reflect on it I usually end up centering on two realities one is the the logos the pre-incarnate word the second person of the Trinity may be symbolized by the gold up top and the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth who lived and grew and grew tired and bled like any of us with the spattered red on the bottom the gospel book came to my mind as I prepared for today's sermon on the feast of all Saints Our collect for today reads, Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. All Saints is a day to remember those Christians who have embodied that virtuous and godly living the collect talks about. They're the ones who we tell stories about, the ones who we want to emulate, the kinds of people who get their own red-letter day in the church year, their own special prayers and their own special services. It's a day to think about eternal glory. And so, one of the lectionary readings is from Revelation 7. In this chapter, John is given a vision of the heavenly throne room, and around the throne, he sees this innumerable multitude from every nation and every people group, using every language to give praise to God. They're waving palm branches, these symbols of victory and they're robed in white, their robes having been washed by the blood of the lamb. These are the baptized. I'll talk a little bit more about baptism in a bit. But they surround Jesus and sing, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. This is one of many passages in Revelation where the multitudes are looking at their Lord and giving him this kind of direct and unyielding praise. Maybe this multitude includes those saints that many of us made tribute to in videos that we shared this weekend, those saints who impacted our lives with their example of faithfulness and steadfastness, the kind of people that the writer of Hebrews describes by saying the world was not worthy of them. Maybe they are ones who lived out the Beatitudes that we read from Matthew's gospel today. John Stott in his book on the Sermon on the Mount says that the Beatitudes aren't groups of people, the ones who are merciful, the ones who are peacemakers, etc but that these are characteristics or qualities of the people who follow Jesus, that all of them should be done by all of us. But it raises a question we all tend to ask ourselves when we read any piece of the Sermon on the Mount. How could any of us possibly do all of the things that Jesus tells us in these three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7? Stott, among others, will say that it's only through Christ and that those who have been united to Christ are the only ones who could possibly be empowered to be meek, merciful, to hunger, and thirst for righteousness. And so instead of looking to the saints in Revelation and the saints we've met in our own lives as something other, we ought to live as they did, receiving these blessings. The blessings, Stott says, the blessings promised is the gloriously comprehensive blessing of God's rule, tasted now and consummated later including the inheritance of both earth and heaven, comfort, satisfaction, and mercy, the vision and the sonship of God, which is what we read at the end of Revelation 7. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a thing to look forward to. And this promise, or this kind of a promise, isn't unique to John's revelation. God's sheltering, or maybe better described as tabernacling with his people, giving them his presence, is promised back in Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4. And God's people already heard the promise that there would be no more hunger and no more thirst and that God would wipe away tears from their eyes in Isaiah 25. John himself had already recorded in his gospel promises from Jesus that whoever eats of his bread would never be hungry and whoever drinks of living water would never thirst. And we could end here, a call for us to emulate the saints keep that vision of the throne room at the forefront of our imaginations, to hear those Beatitudes and strive to live for them, empowered by the Spirit. Wouldn't be a bad sermon. It would be pretty short as well. But if you're like me, the gap between the high bar set and the Beatitudes and my own character easily leads to despair. Maybe, maybe we comfort ourselves by pushing it out of our mind to the end of days. That's, that's a later thing but that feels like a cop-out. Internally, I can't help but emotionally flip between the top and bottom of Fujimura's gospel book, the ideal, glory, and reality. I think, or at least I hope, there's a way to bridge that gap and hold these two things in tension. All Saints Day is a major feast day in the church calendar, so that means it always takes over a Sunday, a part of what is sometimes called All Tide, including All Hallows' Eve, All Saints, and All Souls but we aren't named after the major feast, but the minor one one day later. There's not a liturgy or a collect for all souls. In Protestant circles, it's largely overlooked. So why would we name a church after it? On our website, you can read a nice little write-up by Alan Jacobs about our name, but let me put it this way. Just like the Seinfeld shows Festivus, All Souls Day is the Hallowtide day for the rest of us. Don't worry, there will be no airing of grievances or feats of strength today. Historically, All Souls is the day in which you pray for the deceased non-saints who are posthumously having those unredeemed parts of them still transformed. This period of post-death, pre-glory work is commonly called purgatory. But for those of us who left purgatory on the far side of the Reformation, All Souls Day can still function as a reminder for us to pray for each other. You might even do that on a regular basis, maybe three times a day, perhaps part of some sort of common rule. Is there a connection to All Souls' Day among the All Saints' Day readings? I think so. So I'm going to begin by talking about the title of the last book of the New Testament. It used to have a way cooler name, the Apocalypse of John. Apocalypse though only means something revealed, and so we end up with the word revelation. And we end up, or we tend to read all apocalyptic writing as future-telling, But apocalyptic writing, whether it's in Revelation or Isaiah or in the Gospels, isn't meant to just be a forewarning of future events or final events, but a revealing of what is true. When we read about the promises given in Revelation and Isaiah about God being with his people, it's helpful to remember that these books are written to communities in distress. And God is giving them a picture not just of what they can hope for one day, but a glimpse at things that are real even now. In Revelation, the white-robed saints are identified as those who have gone through the Great Tribulation, or as our NRSV translation puts it, ordeal. It's an ordeal in the same way that 2020 has been something of an ordeal. But how would these seven churches who received this letter have heard it? They were in the midst of life or death persecution, frequently meaning death. In response. To brothers and sisters in Christ who had been killed for their faith, God says through John, oh, those who unjustly died, they're sitting around the throne praising the God who wipes every tear from their eyes. This isn't a a test. If you endure martyrdom, you get the white robe. It's a promise that on the other side of this ordeal, there is glory. Other side, as in later But also other side, as in just behind the curtain, in that reality that we pray breaks into our world every single time we ask, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So maybe we shouldn't see these white-robed martyrs as the privileged few, but as all of us who have been united to Christ in baptism. Primatius, an African bishop in the 6th century, says this in his commentary on Revelation. But if this grace is to refer to all the faithful generally, we must finally conclude that if anyone is cleansed by the font of his Lord, is fed by his flesh, and is inflamed by the call of his spirit, he is in this manner made white as snow. For there are those who are proven to be martyrs before God by their inner character, even though they are not martyrs by way of public act. We all belong to this group, because the source of righteousness isn't ourselves, Remember the words that the multitude are singing, salvation belongs to our God. Our commemoration of those who have gone before us isn't meant to point us to their heroic acts. We're not ancient Greeks celebrating Hercules. We praise God for his works, not our special endurance. We praise God for who he is and who he has shown himself to be in the lives of the saints and the souls. His faithfulness is there in the most virtuous and in the least. Of course, we pray the collect today earnestly, hoping that as we allow ourselves to be shaped by God, he will bring forth virtue in our lives. We don't just kick it down the road and hope for glory later, but we do this hope for transformation now with our eyes fixed on Christ. he Wright puts it this way, God is so full of mercy that his most characteristic action is to come down from the throne and, in person, wipe away every tear from every eye. Learning to think of this God when we hear the word God, rather than instantly thinking of a faceless heavenly bureaucrat or a violent celestial bully, is one of the most important ways in which we are to wake up from the nightmare and embrace the reality of God's true day. And so I want to return to the Beatitudes again and maybe look at them through a different light, hear them a little differently not just as proscriptive qualities to embody, but also as descriptive declarations about God's kingdom. The word that gets translated blessed in these verses means happy, but happy feels like too transient an emotion to describe what Jesus is saying. So usually we see it translated blessed. Uh, And if you look at N.T. Wright's Kingdom New Testament, he translates it as wonderful news for the poor in spirit. But why would it be wonderful news? Why would these people be blessed? I think it gets to the heart of what we mean by gospel. When Jesus starts his ministry, he preaches the good news that the kingdom of God was near. It may not have appeared to be so, but something heavenly was breaking through. So we can treat the whole Sermon on the Mount as an interesting moral treatise, guidelines on how to live, But I think more significantly, the content of that sermon, starting with these blessed statements, are declarations of something that's not naturally known, but is being revealed and declared through Jesus. There's an excellent online resource called the Visual Commentary on Scripture. You can find it at at thevcs.org. And it provides theological commentary on the Bible in dialogue with works of art. And so when you visit it, you'll find a text, three works of art, and some commentary. And in her entry on the Beatitudes, Rebecca Eklund chose to include a painting by contemporary artist Laura James, who connects the Beatitudes to slavery in the United States. You can see it on the cover of your bulletin. It's a powerful piece that forces us to see the upside-down world that Jesus is preaching, where there is something behind the veil in which God has chosen to call those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake blessed, and those who are meek blessed, and those who mourn blessed. And at the center of her peace, and the center of the Beatitudes themselves, is Christ. He's the speaker declaring these truths, but ultimately also the fulfillment of, this, of these Beatitudes. He is the one who mourned. He is the Prince of Peace. He is pure in heart. This is the vision that we can hold on to on this feast day, one that recognizes the glory and praise in the throne room of heaven right now while stepping into the pain and suffering of our own world. I find it easy to cut our gospel in half, to either focus on the life of the world to come or to only see the pain of the world in which we live. Our call is to refuse to allow those two things to be separate. So when we think of the saints, let us not think only of their triumphs, but maybe of their weaknesses, the way that Christ proved to be faithful when ordeals were upon them, the way in which they were poor in spirit. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May we know this to be true in our lives. Amen.